Now, if you remember last week, we kind of ended on a cliffhanger. Jacob had just gone through a very difficult night wrestling with God. Sorry, I'm fighting. Very difficult night, wrestling with God, right? throwing his burdens to God, giving them to God himself. And the, the Bible kind of loses a little bit of its literary power because we know the story, we know what's going to happen, but this is a cliffhanger. At this point in time, Jacob's life still hangs in the balance. It, it still seems like Esau, with 400 men, is coming to kill him. Nothing has changed in that. The only thing that's changed is Jacob. Is Jacob. And we saw him at the end of his power. We saw him alone. We saw him wrestling with God in deep and meaningful and powerful prayer that every one of us should ascribe to. And in that prayer, he's given a new walk. God dislocates his, his hip. And he gets a new walk with God. He's given a new name. He's no longer Jacob, but Israel. And he's given a new beginning. A new beginning specifically with Esau. And today, we get to see Jacob and Esau finally meet. And my principle today, when we give our burdens to God, we need to let him have them. When we give our burdens to God, we need to let him have them. Let me see if I can explain. So Jacob and Esau meet. Let's, let's notice what Jacob does first. Verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Right, so the first thing he does is look up and sees Esau coming with 400 men. Reality just got real. He's coming. That's his death right there. And he divides his family, and he puts his favorites in the back, and he puts his less favorites up in the front. Okay, let's go and read verse 3 as well. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he divides his family, putting his favorites in the back, his less favorites in the front, and then to his credit, Jacob goes in front of them. Jacob crosses first to meet Esau. He's no longer trying to save himself. Remember, before it was, they'll go first, they get slaughtered, and I can run away. Before it was, I'm going to use my family as a human shield so that I can get away from Esau. Not anymore. To his credit, Jacob is facing Esau like a man, going to him. But Jacob also seems to have forgotten that he's no longer Jacob. He's no longer the trickster. He doesn't need to scheme and plot and divide his family and try to protect his favorites and sacrifice the other ones. He doesn't need to do that anymore. So we've got a little bit of good with Jacob and we've got a little bit of bad with Jacob here. He, he no longer needs to, to, to scheme and yet he also goes in front of them and tries to protect them. We also notice in verse 3, he bowed. He bowed himself. Well, how should Jacob be going to Esau? He should be limping, right? That limp is a distinct and obvious sign of God's work. It's obvious God at work in Jacob's life. God gave him that limp specifically. Now, this bowing could be seen as humility. He's finally humbled himself. 
He's finally giving Esau the honor as the older brother that he had stolen from him. That's a, that's a very legitimate concern. But, but, you know, he should be limping. That was God's gift to him. God's gift was a limp. Didn't seem like a gift, but that's what it was. And on the other hand, look at how Esau greets, greets Jacob. Verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Esau runs to meet Jacob. He throws himself on him. He's kissing him. He's so just glad to see his brother after 20 years to have his brother back. So why, why was Jacob bowing? And, and why wasn't Jacob, Jacob going in confidently? Again, we see, some, we see some good with Jacob. He, he's being humble. He's, humiliating, he's humbling himself. But we also see some perplexity with Jacob. Why isn't he limping? Why isn't he showing that gift from God? Jacob seems to have forgotten his new walk. That walk identifies him as a man of God. He should have limped to meet Esau and shown off that limp. That's what God gave him. With the bowing comes pleading. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God, and you are pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. It seems like Jacob is about to start talking about God. God has graciously given your servant. God has graciously given me all this stuff. But instead, verse B, it, it changes. It, it changes, right? Jacob says, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. The, the focus shifts from God, who Jacob should be talking about, Look at all the things God has given me. Look at the vast wealth. Look at my family. Look at my limb. Look at my new name. Look at what God did and be amazed. God did this for me. I left home with nothing. Look at what God's given me. Instead, it's, well, I'm trying to buy your favor, brother. I don't want you to kill me. The focus shifts to Esau. The focus shifts to Esau. He ends up calling Esau my Lord five times in this discussion. He calls Esau, my Lord, five times. Well, that's a funny thing to say. I mean, we, we could look at this as, as reverence for the older brother again. Maybe he's, he's finally coming to terms with he's the older brother. He should have respected him. We could see that. Or we could see that this is groveling. And he's begging Esau, please don't hurt me. Please don't kill me. But, but, Jacob, but Jacob just got a new beginning with Esau. What's he doing? What's he doing? He should be walking in confidence to Esau. 
and telling him all the great things God did. Instead, you could almost picture him on his knees begging. He said, please don't hurt me. I give you all these gifts. I have a family. Please don't hurt me. And to wrap everything up, he then ends the meeting by lying to his brother. This is verses 12 through 17. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and see her. And Esau said, Now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day to his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. This is weird, all right? And you say, how is he lying to Esau? Well, he promises to meet Esau in a place called Seir. That sends Esau south. Seir is south of where they're currently meeting. Then Jacob goes to a place called Succoth. Well, Succoth is actually north of their location. So he sends Esau south, and then he goes north. It doesn't seem like Jacob has any intention of meeting Esau again. In fact, from the information we have, it doesn't look like the two brothers ever see each other again until Isaac's funeral, which will be the next and last time they see each other. Again, we could look at this as maybe he's, he's finally realized that as siblings, it's better if they're just apart. As someone who has a sibling that I don't get along with, I get that. It's better sometimes if, if we just spend some time apart. I can understand that. Or we could see this as trickery again. I'm not sure what Jacob's doing here. What's he doing, right? And, and the cherry on top of all of this has to be his disobedience to God. His disobedience to God. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Kohe Israel. Okay, now... Jacob was commanded to go back to the land of his fathers, specifically to Bethel. Specifically go to Bethel and then on to the land of his fathers. Failing that, Jacob is a pilgrim. He is supposed to continue moving, continue walking, continue striving, just like we are. We're not supposed to buy land and be comfortable and be a part of this world, especially not so close to the land of Canaan. This is bad news. This is bad news. This is going to lead us to the next incident that we have. And this just seems like blatant disregard to what God has told him. And so this whole thing, we have this dual nature of Jacob. Is this trickery? Is this humility? Is this him doing what he's supposed to? Is this him doing what he's not supposed to do? How are you supposed to read this? And I think that Jacob has failed here. I, I, I see this as him failing. I, I find the bowing and pleading to be groveling. I, I notice he never tells Esau his new name, never tells him to call him Israel. He never tells him about his limp of why he's limping. 
He never tells he never tells him he's sorry. He never apologizes for what he did as a kid. And I find it odd that the Bible even continues to call him Jacob and not Israel yet. This looks like failure. In fact, what this looks like to me is an all too familiar story of myself. And I hope I'm not the only one where I spend a sleepless night with God in prayer, giving him everything I've got, pouring my heart out. At the end of it, I'm in tears. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I finally know that I have given him everything on my heart. It's all his, and he can have it, and I don't want it anymore. I've given it to him. Deep wrestling prayer, right? That deep prayer. And what do I do? I wake up the next morning, and I say, God, give me that back. I want that back. It's mine. You can't have it, God. He tells us to cast our prayers upon him, and I do that, I give it to him, and then I go fishing, and I take them right back. And I said, those are my burdens. I want them, God. And by the end of that night, I'm so spent, and I have such a new name, and such a new walk, and a new outlook on God, and he's so great and so amazing, and the next day, I'm still the biggest failure I could ever possibly imagine. Every step I take is an affront to God. Every time I open my mouth, it's something I shouldn't say. I still can't do anything right. Even after I've had that wonderful night with God. Even after I've prayed with him. And I think what we see here is a mountaintop moment from Jacob. He's on that mountaintop. And he sees God in all of his glory. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful. But eventually you have to get off that mountaintop. You have to go back down. And of course, I'm referencing the New Testament. And when the disciples get off that mountaintop, they immediately come to a demon they can't cast out. Jacob immediately comes to a problem that he can't solve. His brother. He can't fix his brother's heart. He can't change his brother. He can't change this situation. But by George, he does his best, doesn't he? He tries. He goes before his family. He's trying to make peace with him. But it's a failure. And that's okay that it's a failure. Because it's what God needed from him. It's what God expected him to do. And what we see here is hopefully my principle. My principle, when we give something to God, let him have it. Let him have it. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you, and I am the worst, because I will gladly cast it all to him, and then I'm going fishing, and I'm reeling it back in, and I want it back. Let him have it. Let him have it. And this isn't a call to do better. We can't do better. I'm not capable of doing better. I am still flawed, I am still sinful, I am still wrong. But God is perfect. And God lives in my heart. And he will use my imperfections for his perfect will. That's what he asks of us. We don't have to go fishing. We have to walk in obedience. We have to spread his word. God will take care of the rest. God will do it. Again, this is not a reminder to do better. If I were to come up here and tell you just do better, be better, that's simple legalism. It's not going to get us anywhere. They've tried that. It doesn't work. This is a call to rest on Christ.
to trust Him. To trust Him with everything you have and everything you are. And no matter our failures, no matter what Jacob does, no matter what I do that's wrong, it's still in His hands. He's still got it. He's going to take care of it. Give Him our struggles and then rest on His promises. Now, unfortunately, what Jacob does here leads us to the Dinah incident. This leads us to the Dinah incident. So let's start a couple of things before we read this chapter. Let's start by recognizing that it was Jacob's carelessness that put his daughter at risk. It was Jacob's carelessness. He disobeyed God, and disobedience to God always ends in disaster. Always. He chose to settle so close to a city in Canaan. And we saw something similar happen with Lot in Egypt, where that city is too attractive, that sin is too attractive, the temptation is too much, because we are sinful creatures, and the sin calls to us, and our sin calls to them. We want to do that. It's too much. We see other dangers later in the narrative. It's not only Dinah who suffers from this. Reuben will have his moment with Bilhah later in the narrative. Joseph tattles on his brother because they're doing things that are bad, because they have things to be tattled upon. Judah will have his moment with Tamar. This family is a mess. This family is a mess, and this is part of that mess, the Dinah incident. Like I've said before, just because something in the Bible is difficult doesn't mean we get to skip it. We still have to dive in and see if we can read something. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to go back through it because it breaks up into a few different pieces. So I'm going to read the entire chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give you. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But in this condition we will consent to you, if you will become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to dwell with them, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamer and Shechem, Hamer's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. 
And Hamor and Shechem his son came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not let their livestock and their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the city of his gate. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son at the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep and their oxen, their donkeys, and what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives took, took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Presbyterians. And since I am few in number, and they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Okay, we'll read the entire thing because there's a few pieces we're going to break up in here. This narrative can be summarized in what is basically three main points. First, let's understand that Dinah is raped by the Canaanite prince. She is raped by the Canaanite prince. And we should see the stark condemnation of this act. In no way is this acceptable from anywhere. The word defiled is used three times in the passage, verses 5, 13, and 27. The word violated is used in verse 2. The men are grieved and angry in verse 7. The act is called disgraceful and condemned in verse 7. It is said Dinah is treated like a harlot in verse 31. There is no doubt that this act is horrendous. There is no doubt about it. And what we see here, what we should pull out of this, is that when our world denies sin, when it says that there's no such thing as sin, they are wrong. Sin is very much real. There are acts that are happening, that happen daily, that are evil and pure evil, and there is no answer to them. The only answer is Jesus Christ on the cross. The only answer for sin is Christ resurrected on the cross. There are pure evil acts. These are the burdens that we are to cast to God and give to him when things like this happen to us. We can't deny them. We shouldn't bury our head in the sand and ignore them. This act is pure evil. Okay. Next, what we see in this moment is a brief snapshot of the Canaanite way of life. A brief snapshot. Let's look at what they do. Right? They kidnap a girl, rape her, and then scheme to absorb her father's wealth. That's the Canaanite state of mind. And then they go to Jacob and say, this is love. This is love. This is not love. This is a far cry from true love. From the love that Christ had for his bride by sacrificing himself for her. This is not love. This is evil. This is pure 
evil. And what we're seeing at this moment is how bad it is now. God gives them 450 more years to figure it out. And newsflash, they don't figure it out. They can't figure it out. They become worse. And we can only imagine if this is how bad it is now, 450 years later, when uh, Joshua shows up, how much they deserved that. How much it was needed, that judgment, because of that pure evil that they are. We can also see the reasons behind God's, God's rules about intermixing between the Canaanites and the Jews. It is not for the benefit of the Jews. Nothing good is going to come from mixing with the Canaanites. This is why intermarriage is so damaging and such a big deal throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God's people are meant to be separate from the rest of the world. And when we start mixing with them, bad things happen. We should also see, my principle here, we should also see our greatest need our greatest care, the greatest thing that we have to cast upon the Lord, that he would remove us from the world of the Canaanites. Because here's the secret. Before he called us out of there, we were no different. Our selfless acts, our acts of charity were like rags, dirty, soiled rags before God. We were no different until he said, come to me. He pulled us out of this world. This is our greatest need from God. We see that even when the evil Canaanites humble themselves, God has space for them. Even when the evil Canaanites, like Rahab, like Ruth, and all the Egyptians who chose to join the Israelites, when they humble themselves and come to God, he makes space for them in his family. He calls and wants all people. God is gracious to save all who will come to him. And if you have not made that choice yet, then this very day I encourage you to do so. Do not wait another moment. Don't leave so great a decision for later. Repent. Leave the world of such great sin and join God's family. Which is the last part we have to talk about. God's family because they don't handle this well either. The men decide to pursue vengeance. Jacob stays quiet at first, and again, you could see this as him being slow to to anger, or you could see this as him being scared to speak up against this prince. You have that duality with Jacob. But then the brothers show up, and they start doing some things that are unacceptable. First of all, it says right there, deceitfully. That's verse 13. They speak to them deceitfully. They use, they use circumcision as a weapon. And this is a hard thing to explain because circumcision is another gift from God given to the Jews to set them apart and make them different. It's special. It's holy. It's a symbol that they're given that they will carry with for another 4,000 years. And they, they weaponize it. And they say, you know, you, you do that, and we can combine with you. 
And that, that's, that's sick. It's gross. They, they've corrupted this gift from God. And, and the best example I could come up with of, of us doing the same thing, if we were to tell someone, hey, go get, a, go get a cross tattoo, and that'll save you, right? We all know that doesn't save you. But then on top of that, go get a cross tattoo, and then we go and slaughter their entire family. That's, that's not fixing anything. That's not helping anything. It doesn't make anyone look good by any means. They corrupted what was a symbol from God. And then they commit this punishment. They hold out this punishment themselves. They go and slaughter innocent men. How many of these guys had nothing to do with this incident? They didn't do anything. Doesn't matter. They go and kill them. And then they take their daughters and their wives. That doesn't make them any better. They steal all their sheep and everything that they have. That punishment is disproportionate to the crime. When you read God's law, the crime and the punishment match. They go together. And the sins of the father are never taken out on the sins of the son. That's, this is wrong. You know, this is wrong. The, the problem is that their attack on their sister doesn't give them the right to sin. It doesn't give them this right. right? We can see this in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.26 Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The problem is not your anger. The problem is what you do with your anger. When you allow that anger to take over and sin. Or James 1.20. For the wrath of man, which is Simeon and Levi, what they're doing here. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is not God's righteousness. And because of these attacks, Jacob's place among his neighbors is lost. Simeon and Levi will lose their place among the brothers. They are no longer given, um, when we get to chapter 49, when it comes time to inheritance of things, they're kind of skipped. And their punishment will continue even to the time of Moses, when their tribes lose quite a bit of what they should have had. Again, we'll see that when we get to chapter 49. And that altar that Jacob built, that altar is now meaningless. He's not representing God. He's not showing anyone God anymore. Their family is no longer doing the work that God has given them. And what we should see in this part of the story, my principle here, what we should see is our constant need to cast our burdens on God. This was wrong. This was an act of great evil. There is no doubt about it. But that doesn't give them the right to do what they did. And what's interesting is that in this entire chapter, God is never mentioned. They never go to God. They never seek his will. They never ask him what to do. They never ask him to take vengeance. Which is like 30% of the Psalms. David asking for vengeance. They never go to him at all. They didn't cast their burdens upon him. Just because we are God's people, just because we are given the great gift of Christ on the cross, doesn't mean it's done. We still have burdens that we have to cast upon him, that we have to give to him, and then let him have. Our need for him, our need for God, does not lessen or diminish over time. Continue to cast your burdens on onto the Lord. And the Dinah incident 
is a warning for God's people to do that. Continue to seek Him. There is great evil in this world. We will have burdens. Only by God's grace are we separated and stopped from committing that great evil ourselves. And when we are given that grace, when we accept that grace, continue to cast our burdens upon Him. Our need for Christ will never diminish.